0: Well, it's a blast to be with all of you. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. It's fun to get to know some of you. I've been able to chat with a few of you about your ministries and hear about your kids and your particular areas of influence. And it is humbling and joyful to partner in gospel ministry with you. So it's fun in in between sessions to be able to hear what God is doing in your midst and to share what God is doing in mine and Aslan's on the move. <laughs> so it, it is so fun to be here. I, I really appreciate y'all letting me come and, and share with y'all. Uh, but as we know, some of, some of the books in the back attest to this. Several key um, scholars and researchers, particularly of American Christian youth, have, have highlighted what they see to be one of the deeper dilemmas among youth, which would be a sense of alienation, a growing sense of alienation, such that our youth actually feel orphaned, even if they're in ostensibly functioning families and homes, and this growing sense of alienation manifests itself in a pluriform of ways, right? I mean, I was chatting with a friend yesterday about self-mutilation and cutting and pornography, which are two symptoms of that fundamental rooted alienation, but actually by practicing those things, the alienation intensifies, and we, we see symptoms like that among our youth all over the place. But the sources for that alienation, which is so prevalent, are diverse, but surely the rising divorce rates, right, contribute to a sense of homelessness that our youth feel. And the intense individualism that comes with iPhones and iPads, eye everything, right? And social media. I think the, the intense individualism that comes with that intensifies a sense of alienation. The image consciousness, where we're thinking in terms of image, which is one degree of separation from real relationship, that kind of image consciousness, and then the images that we create on our social media become a sort of new law under which we labor. Right? We've now got to live up to the image that we project. You know? So it's a new law that that we labor under, and then even the the anti-institutional cynicism, which you spoke of a moment ago, that pervades our culture, teaches our youth to alienate themselves, teaches our youth to disengage from traditional institutions and to be entrenched in little cliques on the side, right, so that they, they are taught to not engage. And all of those sources, among many others, contribute to this sense of alienation that is growing decade by decade. And as we look out and we see these converging sources merge like a toxic cocktail, right, that our youth are imbibing every day, we may be tempted to look and say, is there any hope for our youth in a culture like this? And to make it worse, as youth leaders... We're part of local congregations, local churches, in which, now I'm an evangelical, so I'll speak for evangelicals. I know some, since I am the appointed spokesperson for evangelicalism, but I know some of you are not evangelical, so I speak as an evangelical. But we're, in, we're um, engaged in a local worshiping body that has many adults, evangelical adults, who locate the fundamental predicament of youth in the moral choices they make. So they look at the alienated youth culture and, and pretty much assign wholesale blame on the youth themselves, right? It's either their arrogance or they wanna be mavericks and do their own thing or they're self-centered and their immaturity is just rampant. And so the adults in our congregations, we may feel wedged between an alienated youth culture and adults who feel rather chippy about our youth. And one expression of that I think in our local churches is that sometimes pastors, elders, parents task youth leaders with behavior modification. That that is your job. So if the fundamental problem of our youth is located in their moral choices, then of course the solution is to deal with them on that level. So the solution is behavior modification. So your job as a youth leader is to teach and instruct, well, first of all, to expose their immorality and then to teach and instruct our youth to be good, moral, upright citizens of the United States of America and good, moral, upright church members. And that is your goal. That is your job. So sometimes as youth leaders, we not only are asking, is there hope for our youth in a culture like this? But we're actually asking, is there hope for youth ministry Can an adult within a local worshiping body meaningfully reach out in this culture when we feel so wedged between those who assign blame to youth and the blame themselves who feel alienated? Is there hope for youth ministry? Tonight, nope, not tonight. That would be a long time of me talking. But today, (laughs) today, we are going to go to an Old Testament text and we're actually going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ pictured and storied in an Old Testament text. Where there is a lost, wayward, orphaned teenager, young adult who receives kindness from an adult that changes his life. And as we look at the gospel in the Old Testament, we are going to see that there is hope for teens and there is hope for us as adults who want to reach out to alienated youth. But in order for God to accomplish this, let's go to him in prayer and ask that his spirit would move. Father, we thank you that in Christ you did not come primarily to modify our behavior. You came to perform heart surgery. We thank you that as Dr. Ortland has reminded us, you have given us your very life and your spirit cries, Abba, Father, in our souls. We ask that as we look at this narrative that you would not just teach us about your grace, but you would make us wise to dispense your grace. Might we leave this morning better equipped to be those adults who extend covenant kindness, imaging you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our kind Savior, that we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9. And while you turn there, I will provide a few comments by way of background Many of us know of the uh, age-old conflict between King Saul and King David. Uh, King Saul hated King David because God had anointed Saul as king, but then ultimately rejected Saul on account of his sin. And then God anointed David. And You can imagine this wasn't terrific for their relationship. So there was much turmoil between Saul and David. And David loved Saul and wanted to honor him because he was God's anointed. Yet, Saul hated David, and Saul actually had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan and David were BFF, right? They, they, were, they were best buds, and Jonathan demonstrated strong covenantal lo- loyalty to David, such that he even at one point takes off his royal robes and, ca- and puts them on David, showing his allegiance. They enter into covenant loyalty, and the narrator actually tells us that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Now... This only intensified David's dilemma with Saul. So the hatred between the the, the two, not on David's end, but Saul's hatred for David intensified. And ultimately, in in God's justice, Saul died. Saul was killed in battle. Now, tragically, Jonathan was killed in battle as well. When David heard about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he was mourning greatly. I mean, he he was devastated. He loved both of them. Uh, one in covenant love and one because he was God's anointed, but loved both of them and mourned greatly. But then he began to establish his reign. And in the beginning of 2 Samuel, we see that the, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the high place of Jerusalem. And so David's reign is being solidified and established and God has reached his final abiding place in the land of Israel. And upon David's establishment of his reign, we see that he makes a very surprising and scandalous decision about which we will read today. So let's read 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Makir. Now, if any of you, I know, Beth, you're pregnant, so you can be thinking about names while I read this, because these are great <laughs> names, right? He's in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Take your pick. (laughs) Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We see in this story the radical grace of a king to an orphaned, crippled, and condemned young adult. That is Mephibosheth's deadly predicament. He is orphaned, he is crippled, he is condemned. Let's unpack this a bit. First of all, we see that Mephibosheth is orphaned. Now, as we had mentioned, he is the son of Jonathan, who was the heir apparent of the land of Israel. So Mephibosheth at one time was a prince. He is a prince, the son of the heir apparent of Israel. And in one day, he loses his grandfather and his father in a tragic loss and war. And David mourned greatly on account of this loss, particularly on account of the loss of Jonathan. And as I already mentioned in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan and David cut a covenant together where Jonathan takes off his robe, his armor, his belt, his sword, and gives them to David so that he's dramatically acting out his allegiance those are the symbols of his military power and royal authority and he gives them to David and seals a covenant with David but not only was David tragically not only did David lose a friend in this tragic loss but Mephibosheth a 5-year-old little boy lost his father now we see that Jonathan was a gracious man so we can safely assume that Jonathan would have been a gracious father so in one day Mephibosheth has lost all readily accessible identity. He's lost his family, and he's lost his home. That's a bad day in the office. That is a bad day in the office. In Russell Moore's recent Christianity Today article, I say recent, it's two years, but hey, that's recent to me. He writes an article entitled, Abba Changes Everything, in which he describes the horrors and the despair of being orphaned. Listen to these words. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down the hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror was not the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying when nobody answers, when nobody responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. Such is the plight of an unclaimed orphan. Our youth, who do not know Christ, are spiritually orphaned. Our youth, who do not know Christ, are spiritually orphaned. They do not have a readily accessible identity. They feel strange in their own skin. They have longings that are not met. They have dreams that are unrealized. They feel out of sorts in this world and they are spiritually orphaned. Though our original parents, Adam and Eve, walked in the garden at one time in harmony and bliss with their maker, on account of their sin and wickedness, they were exiled from the garden and banned from reentry. Now, we can imagine the gruesome shock, well, actually, we probably can't imagine, but the gruesome shock of being Adam and Eve and having experienced that kind of intimacy and joy and rest, and then all of a sudden having the horror of life east of Eden. It's that east of Eden shock that our youth continue to feel. Without Christ, they are spiritually orphaned. They sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. They long for relationships to be more meaningful. They long to know and to be known, to cherish and to be cherished. They have these deep longings. For our teenagers who do not know Christ, they could join with the Israelites who were sent into exile on account of their sin, and they could cry out to God from Lamentations 5. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. The the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. As if being orphaned was not tragic enough, Mephibosheth was also crippled in both of his feet. You notice that the narrator twice in verse 3 and 13 draws attention to Mephibosheth's crippled state. Now, although, especially when we start our Bible readings in January, we we think that the Bible is a really, really long book, if you think about all the history that it covers, it's actually a pretty brief book, such that when we read a short narrative and something is repeated Our ears are intended to perk up. That's the way the narrator writes it. So when he repeats something, it's intended to be emphasized. Twice he repeats that Mephibosheth is lame in both of his feet. We we could have just gotten that once, but he's trying to emphasize something. The narrator is emphasizing the desperate plight of Mephibosheth. When he comes into the courtroom of the king, he has no way to defend himself. He not only has been robbed of a family and a sense of identity, but he's been robbed of the normal means of interacting socially. We think in that day, in agricultural society, what would be the implications of not only being orphaned but being crippled? And we have to imagine this. The text doesn't tell us, but we think about even in the New Testament day. Where Where do we see cripples? They're beggars. They're beggars. Now, we know that Mephibosheth had a son because he's mentioned in this text, which means we can probably assume he's a young adult, an older teenager by the time he encounters David. So it's not as if he had had no relationships. But we can imagine how traumatic this would be. Our youth are spiritually crippled. And we've been speaking of this time and time again. Our youth are spiritually crippled. Mephibosheth's situation of being lame in both his feet accentuated his desperation. Accentuated his desperation. In fact, I forgot to mention this. Mephibosheth was not born crippled. In 2 Samuel 4.4, listen to this. We learn how it was Mephibosheth became crippled. This is the text. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about the deaths of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up And fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, I'm not a parent, but what kind of fall would leave a five year old boy permanently crippled in both his feet? This was traumatic. This was a traumatic experience for Mephibosheth. And we take his physical situation and we we see spiritually our youth are crippled. They experience trauma. Fundamentally the trauma, as we mentioned, of the the shock east of Eden, but also trauma in their own life. And we think about how this trauma manifests itself. And I think oftentimes the youth who have experienced the most trauma are the ones who are, are on the social fringes of our youth group. Now, being a fringe kid can manifest itself in multiple ways, but we'll pick two. Being a fringe kid, you can be a leech on the cool crowd, right? You can be fringe, but, but be hanging with the cool crowd, but you're leeching onto the cool crowd. But because it's so obvious that you're obsessed with attention, the cool crowd never really accepts you. They always ultimately reject you. So you're fringe, even though you're ostensibly in the cool crowd. And we, we know kids like that, right? Where it's just so painfully obvious that they're seeking that approval and attention. But then there are also the the fringe kids that create their own little niches off the side, perhaps through bizarre behaviors, right? And sometimes they are, now not all the time, but sometimes they are fringe because they are living out of their trauma. Fringe kids. A moralistic gospel cannot solve the true predicament of our socially, not socially, well, yes, socially, but spiritually crippled teenagers. A moralistic gospel cannot reach the true predicament It cannot dig deep. If we are spiritual cripples, we don't need behavior modification. We need a miracle. We need new creation. The reality of the impossible, uh, impossibility of external codes or moralism to deal with our internal crippledness doesn't stop our teenagers from trying. Just take a moment and reflect how do our spiritually crippled teenagers try to mask their brokenness? or as Dr. Orland mentioned a moment ago, their weakness. How do our spiritually crippled teenagers mask their weakness? Like somebody who's born with a physical defect that tries their whole life to play it off. Well, one thing we've already mentioned, I think is the obsession with social networking, social media, where we do create an image of ourselves. We, we try to convince the world that we're really cool, hoping that they never actually get to know us, because then they'll find out that we're not. So with our obsession with social media, where we can have 2,000 Facebook friends, we'd we'll be the loneliest person in the world. We've actually got to keep people away from us. We've got to hide our spiritual crippledness, because it, if we get to know them, they'll know we're a sham. We also mask our brokenness through licentious behavior, right? The, the teenagers who are just living out their identities in raucous living, a raucous behavior thinking that this will somehow mask the fact that they are wounded deep in their hearts. And this is, this is an obvious one, but, but perhaps the not so obvious one is we can mask our spiritual crippledness by highly religious behavior, by, by trying to earn or trying to have our youth leaders love us or praise us or be the best disciples or be the most rigorous Bible readers, right? All the while trying to provide temporary relief for our deep condition. And I I think sometimes our teenagers are the most fiercely moralistic folk in our society, right? Where we divide our high schools between the drinkers and the non-drinkers. Or, yeah, he's a good guy. He's not a good guy. He's wild. Right? Or the sluts or the wannabes. We create these categories. And and why why do these teenagers do that? Because they're trying to provide relief so that they can point out the brokenness in somebody else and isolate them in their brokenness so they don't have to look at their own spiritual crippledness. Our Our teenagers are always trying to mask their spiritual crippledness. But we know no external rule book, no masking can deal with internal crippledness. As if Mephibosheth's predicament was not bad enough with being orphaned and crippled, it gets even worse. He's an enemy of the state. He's condemned. Now, why do I say this? Enemy of the state. Why is it that Mephibosheth's nurse made such haste to grab the five-year-old Mephibosheth and get out of town? Because in that day, the customary practice was when one king took, the the reigning king, right, When when a conquering king overtook the reigning king, The customary practice was to wipe out the reigning king's family entirely so that generations down the road or decades down the road, no no seed would rise up and say, I am the heir apparent, this conquering king was illegitimate, let's go back to the good old days. So the customary practice was to wipe out the entire family. And we see this play out in the Book of Kings several times. So Mephibosheth's nurse is grabbing Mephibosheth because he's, he's in big trouble The practice was to wipe out the entire family. And so because, you know, and talk about a lost boy. Here is King David, whose best friend was Jonathan, and he didn't even know Mephibosheth existed. Mephibosheth, for the very safety of his life, had to be lost, in exile in his own land. In exile in his own land. And he carried around the penalty of his association with his grandfather, King Saul. Do you notice how often the narrator... Identifies him as in his connection to Saul. It's highlighting the penalty of his association with King Saul, who had personally offended the king, who had assaulted him, who had tried to kill David. So Mephibosheth is an enemy of the state. He's an outlaw in constant fear of death. Our youth who do not know Christ stand condemned, spiritually condemned. When our youth do not know Christ, their situation before their king is far worse than Mephibosheth's situation before his king. Whereas Mephibosheth dealt with the penalty of association with Saul, his grandfather, who had personally assaulted King David. Our youth who do not know Christ stand with the penalty of their sin where they have personally assaulted their king and a holy God. And without Christ, they stand before the King in a posture of rebellion. And even as Dr. Ortland mentioned a moment ago, in our honest conversations, conversations with our youth, they will admit to a sense of self-condemnation. They feel condemned from God, from the church, from their parents, from their friends. It might be in the typical sense that, you know, the the tenth grade girl who slept with a guy in the back of his car freshman year and though she's technically part of the youth group never really feels like she could be really part of a youth group because she's always got to be on the fringe because she has a scarlet, you know, W on her chest. She can never really be part of it. She carries around that self-condemnation. Our youth carry this around. Now, our our culture rejects this idea of sin and condemnation. You want to see swift outrage? Proclaim this in any sort of public forum. Talk about the true spiritual predicament of our youth, and there will be outrage. And I think sometimes as youth leaders, we pander to this culture that, that. that cannot hear this, that wants to cover our ears. And so we actually distort the true depth of the predicament and reshape it so that it's not all that bad, so that it doesn't sound so harsh or so horrible. And one indication of this among us in this room is lackluster evangelism the message of the gospel for spiritual cripples, for spiritual orphans, for those who stand spiritually condemned is urgent. And we pander our youth when we give them some sort of moralistic do-good gospel or when we reshape the predicament to be something other than standing before a king condemned in our sin and failure apart from Christ. Lackluster evangelism. We can never assume the gospel, not in our formal teaching or in our informal teaching, which takes place along the way when we're in the car going to Starbucks, right? We can never assume the gospel. We proclaim it with boldness and with urgency because we love them and because we want to glorify the king. We can never assume, assume this. Well, back to Mephibosheth. His predicament was deadly orphaned, crippled, condemned. It is in this deadly, treacherous condition that he enters the throne room of his king. That is the climax of the story. The climax of this story takes place in verse 6 when Mephibosheth in his deadly condition enters the throne room of the king, probably assuming that the king is going to kill him. Even though Ziba had said, "Hey, he wants to show you kindness, Mephibosheth, I mean, he's got to be wondering, dude, this, this guy's trying to manipulate me. He's bringing me in. He's going to wipe me out on the spot. So he enters in fear. I'm going to read again Second Samuel 9, 5 through 8, because Mephibosheth entering in and probably expectation of death receives a radical, unexpected turnaround when the king speaks his name. Let's read verses 5 through 8 again. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Though Mephibosheth's predicament was deadly, the king provides a surprising and gracious remedy. Well, what is this remedy for Mephibosheth's predicament? First of all, Mephibosheth is sought after. Mephibosheth is sought after. King David intentionally seeks after this lost boy. And he seeks after him not for vengeance, but for blessing. He doesn't take the mindset of, oh, I mean, you know, totally. Like, of course, if I ran across somebody in Saul's family, I mean... I wouldn't show him vengeance. Of course I would show him blessing. He doesn't operate in a hypothetical. He aggressively seeks the lost. The only reason Mephibosheth receives what he receives is because the king sought him out. It is the king's initiative. In Christ, our youth are sought after. In Christ, our youth are sought after. Our teenagers cannot outrun God's relentless love, no matter how helpless they seem, no matter their baggage, no matter the ways they're acting out of orphaned identities. In Christ, they are sought after. And when we leave the 99 and go after the 1, we are imaging our King Jesus. We are imaging our King Jesus because He leaves the 99 and goes after the 1, even when the 1 repeatedly rejects us. And every effort we make seems as if we're wasting our time. We are imaging our king who seeks after the lost youth. Mephibosheth is not only sought after, Mephibosheth is pardoned. He is under the shelter and protection of his king. King David calls Mephibosheth by name and do you see how he casts out his fear? He casts out his fear of judgment when he says, do not fear. He changes his legal status in that moment. From enemy of the state by custom to one who is now receiving a royal pardon. Only the king only the king that was to wake you up, you know? I can keep doing that. I just learned a new trick. Look out. Only the king can issue that kind of pardon. Mephibosheth's situation was such that only the king could deal with his predicament. And the king pardoned him. He's sought after. He's pardoned. In Christ, even the most rebellious of our youth are pardoned. They're pardoned. The heightened climactic moment for our youth is also when they appear before their king. Now, ultimately, this will take place in dramatic form on the judgment day when all of us stand before our king where he knows everything and our our justification will be finalized in the sense that that it will be acted out in dramatic form. But the justification, the verdict, the, the declaration breaks into time and space and it is irrevocable. Our youth who are in Christ are finally, decisively, incontrovertibly pardoned. A royal pardon from King Jesus cannot be revoked no amount of their rebellion can trump god's grace that he has shown in his justification of sinners in his grace to the powerless in his grace to the weak the pardon is decisive how much does king jesus love the teenagers for whom we labor for whom we pray for whom we long that they know christ how much does king jesus love them Well, we talked a moment ago about the beauty of Jonathan disrobing himself and and acting out his allegiance to David by taking off his robes, his belt, his sword, his armor, and putting them on David. King Jesus lays aside his greater royal rights and privileges in order to reach and pardon sinners. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. King Jesus sealed the royal pardon for our teenagers in Christ by making a covenant with his own blood. With his own blood. Truly, this was a costly covenant for Jesus. The king's pardon, listen to this, the king's pardon of our teenagers in Christ is as secure as the father's love for Christ. The king's pardon of our teenagers in Christ is as secure as God's love for his own son. Our teenagers in Christ are as secure in the family of God as is Jesus Christ, because our security is in Christ, irrevocable royal pardon. Mephibosheth is sought after he's pardoned, he is also included. The king extends kindness to Mephibosheth through material inclusion. We notice this. There's, uh, there's a restoration of the land that Saul had lost on account of his wickedness. It's a costly decision for David because, you know, of course, David was the reigning king. He took over everything Saul had lost. And Saul had compromised it by his own wickedness. And yet what does David do? In humility, not seeking to accumulate and grasp, he takes Saul's portion And gives it to Mephibosheth materially including him and giving him again as an Israelite who believes that the land is the proof of inheritance and belonging to God he includes him again in the covenant family this is vast material inclusion and then of course I mean you gotta love this Ziba and all his household is now put into service to always provide food for Mephibosheth's family a crippled who who would in an agricultural society Now he has a whole servant, the whole set of servants who will be focusing on providing food. And food and eating, the references abound six times in this short narrative, food and eating. It's about material inclusion. But the material provision climaxes in what? Table fellowship. The material inclusion of King David toward crippled orphan condemned Mephibosheth climaxes in table fellowship which seals a family-like bond. We noticed that twice the narrator draws attention to the fact that Mephibosheth is crippled, which we said in the short narrative is intended to, to heighten the sense of desperation. Four times the narrator draws attention to Mephibosheth's new situation as one who sits at the king's table. New situation as one who sits at the king's table. David relationally includes Mephibosheth in the very life of his family, such that he not only now has a fatherly relationship with King David, you notice he eats at the table what? Like one of the king's sons. But he has a brotherly relationship with the king's sons and daughters. A former orphan from the family of the king's enemy at the table of the king fellowshipping with his household this is scandalous. This is this is preposterous. It's ridiculous. And even Mephibosheth recognizes its scandal. And it's, I was about to make up a word, but it's, it would only be funny to me. Uh, but he recognizes, sometimes I entertain myself. I live by myself. And I am finding that increasingly I'm getting weirder. To your point. I'm getting weirder and weirder. And I have this new thing for making up words. But, um, but Mephibosheth recognizes, I'll tell you later. Um, Mephibosheth recognizes its scandal. How do we know this? He says, you're showing regard for a dead dog such as I? It scandalizes even the one who receives the grace. Brothers and sisters, the scandal of King David showing that level of grace to Mephibosheth is eclipsed by the scandal of the gospel when King Jesus shows grace, covenant kindness, hesed to sinners who are orphaned, condemned, and crippled. They are included. Our our teenagers, even the most alienated of them, are included if they are in Christ. We regularly celebrate our inclusion where? At the Lord's table. His his body, the bread, the, the outpoured blood, we celebrate that we are included in the very life of the Trinity. And our king to our alienated teenagers, doesn't just provide food and eating through servants. Our king, those teenagers who you love, our king gives them the food of his own life, of his own body. That's our king. That's our king. They have union with Christ. They have the spirit in their hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. As J.I. Packer writes in Knowing God... Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. While justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual needs, this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification does not in and of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge, but in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God is a greater thing. Our teenagers not only experience a fatherly relationship with their king, but they experience a brotherly and sisterly relationship with all of those who have union with Christ. They crave this sort of gospel community, which we seek to cultivate in our youth ministries. They not only are received and included in the family life, but they also, as we mentioned a moment ago, receive the full inheritance. They're included as citizens in Christ's kingdom. The land that was lost, the inheritance forfeited by Adam and Eve, is received back through the gospel on steroids. It is received and then some. Now, let me make a bold statement. Our teenagers in Christ today who are still suffering, who still deal with the momentary afflictions, who are still struggling, still experiencing the pain and alienation, yet they have union with Christ, are better off today than were Adam and Eve in the garden. How can we say that? How how can somebody in their right mind say that? Because they have union with Christ. They are in Him. They are in Christ. Christ and though they struggle though they suffer and we don't diminish that by calling it momentary but we actually stare it in the face and say but it's momentary you have union with Christ you are better off than Adam and Eve in the garden because you have the very righteousness of Christ you have the life of Christ they are not only brought to the king's table they are brought into his heart that's their king and it gets even better King Jesus extends an aspect of covenant kindness to our youth, our alienated youth, in a way that King David couldn't even image. King David couldn't even image this aspect. Though Mephibosheth remained a cripple at the king's table for the rest of his life, our teenagers are being healed from the inside out with the radical, transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, our crippled youth are being transformed. King David could never have extended that kind of hope to an orphan, crippled Mephibosheth, but David's greater son, Jesus Christ, can and does. They are transformed in their relational status from orphan to those who now have the spirit, the spirit of God crying Abba, Father, in their hearts. They are transformed from their legal status of rebels to those who are now citizens in His kingdom and who can walk by the Spirit of God. But grace extends beyond transformation of legal status. Grace transforms us in our weakness. It gets to the core of who we are and it transforms spiritual cripples into glorified heirs. You may have heard people tout the saying, uh, the, the, the church is a hospital for sinners and, and not a museum for saints. And right they are, right? I mean, some of us can distort the gospel to make it seem as if it's, it's for a bunch of good moral people. And there are many people, I, I think, in, in our day who are raising the flag on this kind of moralism. So we're aware that this is a moralistic message, that this actually doesn't get to the heart of the gospel. But might I say this, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a warehouse for sinners. Grace intends to transform us. God doesn't leave us where we are. He does not leave us where we are. The church is a hospital for sinners. Our youth ministry ought to be a hospital for sinners. Now, at the risk of being female touchy-feely, may I ask you to do something? Will you close your eyes? I I know, I know. I don't like it when people do this to me either, but Trust me, will you close your eyes and in your mind's eye, will you think of the one teenager who is the most desperate, who is the most obviously spiritually crippled to you? The one perhaps whom you have invested so much energy, so much prayer, so much heart into, and yet you seem to be getting nowhere. And perhaps if you're a parent, this is one of your own children. Get that teenager in your eye. One day, if and when this teenager trusts Christ, God's grace will transform him or her from the spiritual cripple who still deals with the pain of brokenness, addiction, sinful flesh, into glorified heirs who know total freedom from all weakness. Total freedom from from their sin. And one day, they'll be set free from their sin and brokenness such that they'll not only be declared righteous, they will possess righteousness. They will be inherently righteous. And all they do, think, say, they will be righteous. They will be totally transformed. They'll not only be free from their condemnation, but they'll be free from crippling weakness and fear. This will be the day when that teenager doesn't only partake of the Lord's Supper, but sits down at the table of the marriage feast of the Lamb. That day, the climax of 2 Samuel 9 takes place, of course, when Mephibosheth comes into the king's chamber. And brothers and sisters, the climax for that teenager in your mind takes place when they come to the king's, come into the king's presence as well. As First John 3 tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This hope of future righteousness is an anchor for us as youth ministers seeking to watch the gospel transform spiritual cripples. And my question for you is simply this. Do you dream like this? Do you cast this vision of wholeness, of righteousness, of transformation to your teenagers? Do you pray in light of this hope? Do you even take time to imagine what Molly or Sims or Mary or David or Robert, do you take time to imagine what they will be like when they see Jesus face to face if they are in union with Christ? Do we pray boldly It's a vision of wholeness that compels us in gospel ministry. That is where moralism dies. Lastly, in light of this scandalous gospel of grace, how do we as adults, as youth leaders, take part? What role do we have in enacting this gospel in our our local churches? Well. For our time thus far, we've we've primarily focused on Mephibosheth's perspective of the story, and and now in our last minutes, we're going to be looking at the perspective of King David, the adult who actually dispensed grace. And we'll be asking how we can be further equipped to do the same. The key to understanding David's actions of using his power that he had been given to leverage it for the sake of the powerless and the weak The key is not only to look at his historic covenant cut with Jonathan. You notice that the the motivational language is for the sake of Jonathan, right? That's not the only key. The key is to think about the covenant that David cut with God. The covenant that David cut with God, which was an everlasting covenant. Both God and Jonathan said, we're in this no matter what. That is the key. David uses the Hebrew word for covenant kindness three times in this story. And in verse 3, you'll notice that he refers to it as the kindness of God. David wants to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. So David is showing kindness because he had received kindness. Here's the truth. The truth that David understood... He was Mephibosheth. David was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth in his orphaned, crippled, and con- condemned state was merely dramatically acting out what David knew to be true of his own heart and his own predicament with his king had he not been bound in an everlasting covenant that could never be compromised. David knew He was Mephibosheth. And this depth of understanding which increases, and we see it in in places like Psalm 51, right? As David lives his life, he has an increasing understanding of his predicament before the king without the binding covenant. This is what equips David as a giver of grace. And brothers and sisters, are you Mephibosheth in this story? Are you the one who is orphaned, crippled, condemned, and apart from the sheer grace of God, would die alone, far from home, alienated? Or is that a bit over the top? I mean, it's one, it's one thing for us to talk about how our alienated youth resonate with Mephibosheth's predicament. It's a whole other thing to turn in our hearts and say, I'm Mephibosheth. I mean, were we really saved by the sheer grace of God or... Or was it, I mean, grace and some good moral effort? Or grace and our religious pedigree? I mean, you don't know who my daddy is, right? Or grace and our theological prowess? Or grace and our acute ability to diagnose the culture and our ministry giftedness? Or is it God's grace alone? Only until you are Mephibosheth in this story can you be David in this story. That is the key to dispensing covenant kindness is knowing that we were lost, we were ruined and our King Jesus took off His royal robes and came and saved us and gave us His royal robes taking on our predicament in His own flesh. That is the key to David's actions. No Mephibosheth in his right mind could leave the throne room of the king thinking that he had earned that grace or could ever improve upon that grace. That would be idiocy. This is where moralism dies. The gospel truths of 2 Samuel 9 commend to us as youth leaders the urgent proclamation of the gospel and the urgent demonstration of the gospel. So... My fellow Mephibosheths, in Christ you are sought after and relentlessly pursued. In Christ you are fully pardoned and there is no condemnation against you. In Christ you are included into the very heart of the Trinity. You feast with Him at His table, not like one of His sons, but as one of His sons and daughters. And one day you will feast with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Christ, you are presently being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And there will be that great day when we will entirely be set free when all creation itself will see the revealing of God's sons and be set free from its bondage. Let us then proclaim the incomparable hope of the gospel with boldness. The fields are ripe for the harvest. Let's get at it. May we pray for us. Father, we thank you that In Your Gospel, there's not only hope for alienated teenagers, but there is hope that You would use us as youth leaders to show covenant kindness. That we would extend the kindness that You have shown us because we know the depths to which we've needed it and received it from You. Father, might You humble us with Your Gospel and might You cause us to rejoice over these teens. Would we leave the 99 and go for the 1 in order to image your love. Father, might we be gripped by grace. We praise you for King Jesus and for the ways that he has loved us, which has transformed us in our deepest of hearts. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.